we will start with a lesson in masculinity. Believe it or not, I've come up with an intriguing question about taxes, and we will also discuss how the Christian might think about what's happening in Israel. That and more on this week's Corey Truax Show. And I know you may say, Corey, in your life you have used too much product in your hair and your jeans are a little bit too on the skinny side to be talking about masculinity, but I will use some very good sources. And as what we will find is apparel is often not what defines a man. I actually, uh, up until about an hour ago, I did not feel good about this episode. I just knew I had to do one, sort of have to do one. I used to have had to do one because WLFJ required it of me. Now I have an advertiser. Uh, so I, I needed to get a show done. But as I formulated some thoughts, I think we actually have some interesting discussions to have together, and I would welcome your feedback on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or threads. Yeah. Look for me, Corey Truax. You'll find me there. You can also get me at Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com. I'm glad you're here for the Corey Truax Show. Amongst many other things, I get to serve the awesome people of Beachwood Church at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville. You are invited for any given Sunday morning. If you're not part of a, a church family, we'd love to have you out at Beachwood Church in Greenville. Here is where I'll begin. I've interacted some into this microphone with the the conversation we we have culturally about masculinity. So you have, uh, what was that guy's name? Andrew Tate, that, that world that's recognizing that there's a problem in manhood masculinity. They often recognize a lot of the problems inside second and third wave feminism, some of the effects those things have had on men. And then that kind of secular philosophy and that kind of chauvinism, it is a, it's a chauvinism. It's not true masculinity or a biblical view of what a man's role is in the world to his family in relationship to women, children. That type of chauvinism has been toxic and terrible, and we've called you to resist it and get your kids to resist it and not be a, not be a, an Andrew, Andrew Tate type. And then we've, I know I've interacted some, on the show, I think this is more with Cody Fields over on that project we do sometimes talking about post-millennialism. That in that post-millennial world, in the eschatology, their their philosophy of end times, I'm just noticing an, an also odd view of masculinity. It's jockish. It's 1990s locker room. Uh, it feels like a lot of guys who were, were once a big deal because of athletics and now they're older and they just taken over that attitude they had in the 90s when they were a big deal in high school. They've taken that into their adulthood. And so there, there's a discussion being had now about masculinity and its role. And I just think Nancy Piercy has done an incredible job. If you don't know Nancy Piercy, she wrote one of the seminal books of the last 40 years for Christians called Total Truth. I'm looking at a copy on my shelf right now. I recommend that book to you. It's a good crystallizer of the moment in which you live. And she was writing about it 40 years ago, 30 years ago, whenever that book came out. I recommend Nancy Piercy's Total Truth. She did a great book that recognized uh, this idea of the nuclear traditional family that we have, that dad gets up and leaves and mom stays home, was really just something we came up with in the Industrial Revolution, that the actual uh, normal model for family in the Western world is the family stuck together, did their industry together. The kids came up and learned the industry of their parents or their neighbors and would go into that uh, into that endeavor. So she does good history, she does good philosophy, she's a good Christian thinker, and she's recently done something on masculinity and manhood. This came across my feed, I don't remember where, I took a screenshot of it, and it's one of the rules of uh, broadcasting and podcasting, you're never supposed to just read. But this is good enough, I think, just to read to you with the wisdom, the biblically informed wisdom of Nancy Piercy, 
on one part of the masculinity discussion. I can't remember what book this is from, but this is one of her recent books about manhood. Here you go. One of the most misunderstood phrases today is be a man or act like a man. It's even treated as toxic. Uh, Joe Ehrman, a coach and former NFL player, gave a TED Talk that has been viewed over a half a million times. He said, the three most destructive words that every man receives when he's a boy is be a man. Today, the phrase has come to mean many things like stuff your feelings, turn off your emotions, don't be a sissy, don't be like, here's the key, don't be like a girl, be a real man. So here's the, uh, the uh, uh, averment, yeah, to allege, to aver, yeah, to the averment, the, ale- the allegation of the world of worldliness is the problem, there's a problem with the phrase be like a man, in a part because that is uh, translated as don't be a sissy, turn off your emotions, don't be like a girl. Now, back to Nancy Piercy. She says, But that is not what the phrase meant originally. In the Old Testament, when King David was on his deathbed, David issues a charge to his son Solomon, who's about to become king. David says to Solomon, So be strong, act like a man. In the next verse, David defines what this phrase means. David says, Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him. Keep his decrees, his commands, his laws and regulations. Therefore, to act like a man is to obey God's laws. We'll pause there for a second. So masculinity is not what you're getting on the Andrew Tate world, which is lift heavy things and get a bunch of women. Now, for the record, I'm a big fan of lifting heavy things. Uh, I think when men, not just lifting heavy things, when men keep their bodies in in the shape to be helpful and useful on into their, their older years, it's good for men. It's not just good for their bodies, it's good for their mind, it's good for the soul. It's good for men to uh, look at look at their physical strength. The Bible says it's the glory of young men. I know I'm, I'm quickly exiting that uh, that category into, into firmly middle age, uh, but we, we want to hold on to our health, our, our, our wives and our kids and the communities around us need need that. Sure, that's good. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to denigrate that in part because sickness and uh, dependency is one of the is one of the things an enemy can use against you. I'm talking about a spiritual enemy. So we want to be as healthy as we can, recognizing caveats everywhere for physical ailments and genetic things. So don't don't hear me accusing you uh, if, of something that you can't accusing you for something that's not actually your fault. Some kind of genetic thing. All right, so if masculinity is not their thing, get a bunch of money, get a bunch of women, get in shape. If it's not that, we get uh, – and I would say on the other end, it's not just lording authority and power and saying, everyone shut up and listen to me. I'm the one with wisdom. It's actually just obeying. So obey God's law. Back to Nancy Piercy. Of course, the same obedience is required of all genuine followers, followers of God. That's because, oh, this is so brilliant. I love this. It's not because David is contrasting man to woman. He is contrasting man to child. He is encur- he's encouraging Solomon to grow into spiritual maturity. That's a good word. Now, th- listen, major distinctions between men and women. We are complementary of each other. Men need to do masculine things. Women need to do feminine things. Here's what both of them need to do. Stop being children. Grow up. The, the contrast here is not 
man against woman. No, we need each other to be fully grown up. The thing we all got to do is stop being like children and having childish, uh, I was going to say childish priorities. But you know, the first thing that popped into my head, I just wanted to polish up and not say it too, uh, too, in in a way that needlessly offends. But the, the way I see our age, especially my age, 37, I'll be 38 next month. What I see at my age, people in their 30s, that they don't give up from their childhood is their inability to say no to their appetites. I understood when my, now these young men that I got to play one of the dad roles, dad roles for, I understood at four or five why they just couldn't say no to ice cream. I understood why their dietary indulgence just had no no, no governor on it. I understand. You're four. What are you, you're, you're thinking like a child. Now they are grown men. One of them is so disciplined in his nutrition, and the other one will actually, is starting to make better nutritional choices all the time. They left behind a childish thing. And you got to bring that to other appetites. That's websites we go to. That's people we talk to. The appetites we have, the indulgences we have as children, we got to leave those things behind. We grow into men and women who look on our childishness and say, I'm leaving that behind. I'm going to grow up into someone who's responsible for others. I'm going to grow up into someone who, who leads and take care of my responsibilities. If I don't get back to reading this, we're going to do this all show. Let's go back. Uh, of course, this, there we go. Uh, more from Nancy Piercy. Here we go. Likewise, in the New Testament, when Paul says, act like men, he means grow up, be mature. In the same verse, he says, stand firm in the faith, be strong. That's 1 Corinthians 16. The context is a few chapters earlier where Paul writes, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. To be a man is to grow up and be mature. In fact, the phrase continued to mean the same thing right up until the cusp of the modern age. Quote, at the end of the 19th century, 19th century is 1800s, so think 1890s, early 1900s, explains sociologist Michael Kimmel, Michael Kimmel, The term manhood was synonymous, get this, was synonymous with adulthood. When we said for for, uh, centuries in the English language, mankind meant humankind. We're talking about adults. To be manly was to accept adult responsibilities as a provider, producer, protector of a family. Manhood was opposed to childhood, not womanhood. How tragic that in our own day, the phrase has been twisted from a positive to a negative meaning. Now, I... I also do want to emphasize, now this is no longer Nancy Piercy, I want to emphasize the distinctions, contrast between man and woman are very, very important. But this, this conversation we're having around masculinity, let it be defined in large part as contrasting adults to children that we all get called up into adulthood. Now, as I've seen over on the Andrew, Andrew Tate brute side, I have also seen this odd, I don't even know what adjective to put on this thing I've seen from men who say they're in the faith, they seem to know a lot of theology, and uh, I would also put it as brutish. A lot of their ways and their language remind me of Andrew Tate. They seem to have a lot of the same attitudes about women. I want to play for you now, just because it was sent to me, the op, the uh, what not to do. In part, I, I want to play this because I saw some. I don't want to overplay it. It was like three. I saw like three or four people on Twitter that are part of that 
that group online that I come across sometimes who I think they're brothers, but I think they're misguided. They were sharing this, saying, now this is how it needs to be. In this day and age, at this time we're in, they use that phrase that gets on my nerves so much, they know what time it is. This is how we, we Christian men, need to be speaking to the secular pagans. And I'm going to argue, no, this is ineffective. I'm actually going to argue this is, in a lot of ways, childish. And you can still be bold without being like this guy. What you're about to hear, I'm not going to play all six minutes of you, six minutes of it, six minutes of it, because I promise you, I, I don't care how rough you are, this guy will grate on you after a, like 30 seconds. He's speaking in front of the Dover, New Hampshire school board. They're talking about removing a book from a high school that should be removed. I look up the book. It details sexual homosexual activity with some very graphic language. It should be taken out of the school. He is correct. It would be good for a Christian to show up and say that. I don't know if this guy claims to be a Christian, by the way. He never says it in his six minutes. But um, he's technically correct. And here is a really good example about how to go about being technically correct and doing it the exact wrong way. I don't even know his name, uh, but here you go. This is from the Dover. Oh, got to press a button on my machine here real quickly. There it goes. And now here is the guy from Dover, New Hampshire School Board meeting. Good evening, cowards. Rick. He opened with, good evening, cowards. Yeah, that's a good start. Cabard 97 Spruce Lane. Nice to see a bunch of fat, ugly women. <gasps> Oh, what? Excuse okay. you. What? Can we see the agenda? No. So that's a woman behind him in the crowd saying, "Excuse you." To which he just turns around and says to her, "Shut up." No. 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 They're fat, ugly no. women, is what they are. Let's talk about it. Uh, We're not having that. You don't have to buy. Some people are get up, getting up and leaving, to which he's just telling them, all right, bye. It's called well, free speech. Bye. Okay. That's not free speech. That's insulting. Bye. That's good. I mean, that guy's in the background saying, that's not free speech. That's insulting. That guy's dumb. Yeah, you, insulting is free speech. It's not how a man should behave in this situation. It's not helpful. It's not productive to just come in and say, all right, you fat women, listen to me. <laughs> okay, everybody, stop. Let let Mr. Hubbard, Hubbard, Hubbard. And now, listen, this woman is named Carolyn Mebert. She's the chair. She, I'm sure she's a kooky person. Uh, but she's actually being the reasonable one. All right, well, he's here. He gets his time. Let him talk. Speak, please. Enough. Go ahead, Rick. And we wonder why children are retarded stupid today. We wonder why. We wonder why when we have these these pathetic people here called teachers rape the children's mind. And if you people are too stupid to know what rape is, it's called control, you morons. Are you speaking? I mean, he's just got nothing but insults for everybody. And again, small group of people saying, this is how it's got to be. Uh, I would argue not at all. I mean, not, I'm not even going to go like, you, you got to be sweet as can be. You can use bold language, but, but oh wait, what is that? It's in Colossians or Philippians. It's something uh, like, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. I'm willing to say, salt in a wound sometimes burns. Sometimes grateful, graceful speech will, will burn a little bit. We, we, we need to know how to answer every person. And in this setting, 
We don't come in with, you fat morons. There's no reason. There's no wonder why these kids are so stupid with all you pathetic loser fat moron teachers. That's not going to help. Here's just a little bit more. In 51 seconds. I'm keeping time. That's almost three minutes. That, okay, so you got. Hold on a second now. Is that through the interruptions from these clowns here? Does that include that, or are you going to give me back? You that know, time? I, let, let's time. give him the full three minutes. Whatever. I'm just skipping through now. Keep going. Okay. So these. Children grow up and become adults, and now they're just as stupid as they were taught, right? Or just as smart as they were taught. And so what happens is we all become dumber and dumber and dumber, and we don't even have the brains right now in our society to see that this book is not worthy to be where it is. You know how he sounds reasonable now? He's, I mean, well, still being a little insulting. But when you come in hot like that, and then you try to make a reasonable argument, it's hard to hear it. I think this is one of my calls, I think, in the, my next, I don't know, 40 years of life, as God knows what's coming for us in the, the conflicts culturally, is saying to people on my side, do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? Because you, you could be both. I would argue there's an effective way to be right, and then there's just a righteous way to be right. And uh, this guy... I mean, is he right? Sure. Go, getting up and calling everyone pathetic, fat morons, I'm going to argue, not all that effective way to get what you want. All right, so that's the masculinity point I wanted to make, in part pulling this video in, because some people who talk about masculinity were saying, this is what we need in this day and age. And I'm telling you, no. No, 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 we don't. I got a question about what's happening in Israel from a good friend, church member. I will tell you about that here in a second, but that reminds me that one of the themes the last couple of years of the show has been talking about ancient Israel and the, the laws God gives them, the regulations God's give, God gives them, and this new thought that I've come across that we should be thinking of practical ways in which those laws would affect our laws today. And that gets abstract, I understand, because we tend to not get gored by other people's oxes and then have to think about, well, what, how does reckon? How does this get uh, reconciled? We tend not to fall off of someone else's roof because they didn't have a parapet like in the Old Testament law. And so we wonder how those things might be applied. But as I just said there, it's unlikely that you have been falling off of someone's roof or gored by an ox, but the modern-day analog might have happened to you. And I think the modern-day analog is getting hurt in a car accident or getting hurt at work. Those two things and some others... We, we know they have serious consequences. Medical bills pile up. You're losing wages because you can't work. You're trying to recover physically while working through a labyrinth of a process to get justice. I just want this for you. Don't be intimidated by it. Don't be scared. There are people who can help you. And the one that I want to point out to you is a personal friend of mine. His name is Samuel Harms. Samuel Harms, as in say, stay out of harm's way, H-A-R-M-S. You can Google him or you can find him at 864-666-6666. He is Samuel Harms, attorney at law, for real. I've seen these people, I've seen these things really hurt people. So don't try to do it alone. Reach out to somebody who can help. Reach out to Samuel Harms here in Greenville. He's at 33 Market Point Drive, Greenville, South Carolina, 29607. The number is 666-6666. So if you have been gored by the modern-day ox or fallen off of someone's roof or the modern-day analog that is hurt at work or got hurt in car accidents, give him a call today. Don't try to navigate it alone. His name is Samuel Harms at 666-6666. A dear friend of, 
I don't know, almost 30 years, church member as well, said to me at a church function, I guess that that might have been Sunday, that could have been kid church, just asked a good question. Hey, uh, the question was along these lines. And by the way, I know you're listening, and I'm, I'm only not naming you because I don't know if you care to be named. I, I named I named one person one time, and they did not like it, and so I'm very cautious about that until I get um, uh, permission. The uh, The question was basically, what are we to think about war in Israel in relation to the end of time? The And all the memes I see in my feed all the people I see in my social media feed that say, pay attention to what's happening in Israel, this could be the end, you know, get get ready for, for hard times. Should, I think the question was in large part, should I be worried? Is there some worry I should have? Because on my news screen and in my feed, there are a lot of people saying that what's happening in Israel is an indication of ultimate things, the end of things. I'm going to say, get, first give you the answer, no. I don't think you should be worried, but then I want to take 10 minutes here and give you, I hope, the fairest the fairest reading of why people think that and then respond to it. So the way I grew up was this, and, way, and the way a lot of independent fundamental Baptists, a lot of Southern Baptists, a lot of denominations that found a lot of their their main figures in the last 150 years coming out of Appalachia, in large part that didn't come through some of the processes that things like Presbyterian churches require you or Lutherans or Anglicans. Uh, some Some of that strain led to a certain reading of the Bible regarding the nation state of Israel that's very young. It's only been, it's really only in America, if you take it to if you take this theology to the churches in England and in France and across Europe, they will not really know that, that it's such a, a dominant force in American Christianity to think so much about the nation-state of Israel. So here's my fairest reading. The folks that think what's happening in Israel has a great deal of consequence for what might happen next in human history. They d- believe deeply that Israel's reconstitution as a nation in 19, oh man, 48, 49, somewhere in there, that its reconstitution was a matter of prophecy, that the Bible prophesied it, that it is of massive world significance that a country called Israel became reconstituted on a map that it became a government and recognized by other countries, their, ar- their argument, their stance is that was a significant prophetic fulfillment in our day. Their reading would say that God's plan, his ultimate plan, was for that ethnic group of Jews to hold that specific land, and that that case, that ethnic group holding that physical land that is Israel, that you can read about in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that is the fulcrum of history. Or if it's not the fulcrum, that fulcrum meaning uh, the hinge on which everything moves, if you picture a door that has two two hinges, one of those hinges is that ethnic group being in that land, that history hinges in part on that. And there, the evidence, the things they would argue in part would be this. 
God made a lot of promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those promises were for that ethnic people, the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons on through Joseph, and those 12 tribes that took that land, that those promises were for ethnic Israel, for that land. And therefore, because God keeps his promises, that land is monumentally significant to world events. So you got to pay attention to it. And think that they would continue to argue. And therefore, when Jesus starts to say in Matthew, I wish I was better at this. I used to be so good at it. Matthew 18 or 23, wherever the Olivet Discourse is, that as Jesus is prophesying there, I mean, he's talking about uh, keep an eye on what's happening in Israel because when you see these things coming, wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and famine, when you see these things coming, the Son of Man is near, and that's about Israel. And so even this group of people would have been saying for a long time, these prophecies of of the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus says all these things are going to happen to Israel, they can't happen because there is no Israel. And now that there is an Israel, these people would say, all those prophecies can become true. And therefore, when there are wars and rumors of war in Israel, you better watch out because the Son of Man is coming. That's their argument. Now, I would just quickly say to you, that's new. That is a, a less than 150-year-old view of the nation-state of Israel and its relationship to world events. Here is the historic, the much more historic take inside of Christianity for centuries and centuries. It would be that Israel, that ethnic group, those people, they were they were the, uh, the conduit by which we would get the original promise given in Genesis. Before God ever promised physical land to Abraham, he promised to humanity that there is one coming by the seed of the woman. Woman doesn't have seed, therefore the, the seed is, is God-given, the Holy Spirit. There is one coming by the seed of the woman who will have his heel bitten, but will crush the head of the snake that bites his heel. We have historically read that to be Jesus who comes, lives how he could not live, gets his heel bitten, gets killed by the the serpent, the devil, Satan, but then crushes his head by resurrecting and ultimately coming again later. That Israel was God's blessed, chosen people to give us the original promise of Genesis. And so he gives to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the promise that yes, you're going to get this land, and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I don't remember where that is exactly. It's Genesis 22, 23, 24, somewhere in there. Hey, this, this promise of land and people that's going to grow, all the, the peoples of the world will be blessed. Historically, I think, I don't think I'm going too far by saying, historically we've understood that to mean, in large part, The Messiah is coming through you, and all the peoples, all the nations will be blessed by what I'm going to do through you. And then Romans 9, and Paul there will argue that not all ethnic children of Abraham, not all those people in Abraham's line, were his offspring. They were physically his offspring, but he's arguing there those who really trusted the promises, those who were faithful to the end, those that understood that uh, that ult- and, 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 uh, and whatever level they understood it, 
that salvation was from the Lord and that there, there would be a Messiah coming, the ones who were faithful, believing Israel, the believing ethnicity, that believed God and his promises, they were true Israel. Then two chapters later in Romans, Paul will argue that these two things. God has not rejected the ethnic people of Israel. His chosen people and those who believe in the way of salvation, Jesus, God does not reject them because of what they did to Jesus. He argues God still accepts his ethnic people who believe in Jesus and we the Gentiles, the non-Jews, we've been grafted in to a tree where Jesus is the root. Jesus is the root of this tree. Israel came out of the promise to give us Jesus and then there will be some branches cut off because they are not believing and we the Gentiles, we get grafted on and we read that and it's awesome. What an awesome thing it is for us to be grafted on. And then finally, that Matthew 18 or 23 that I can't remember which one where the Olivet Discourse is, that Jesus will teach there that yes, a whole lot of trouble is coming to Israel. The Son of Man is coming to bring judgment. And we, we believe, I would argue the vast majority of Christianity has believed all around the world for centuries that Jesus prophesied of a decisive moment of how God was dealing with Israel, and then God did it in the year 70. So, you know, uh, take all the you know, 1900s, 1800s, 1700s, take the first two numbers off. In year 70, 70, that Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. The Romans came and destroyed the temple and the priesthood, and really it was the end of the world. The end of the world where God communicated to his people through priests and you met with God at the temple and you had your sins forgiven through sacrifices. The Romans destroyed it. By God, God used the Romans to destroy that world and a new world was, was born. That this new covenant that Jesus gave us at this Passover right before his death, the new covenant is here in my blood and something new was altogether started. I would even argue Jesus' ministry gives us hints of this the same way that Genesis says, by your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Well, Jesus came and gave us hints. He would go to the, to the Decapolis, and he would serve and heal those who were not part of the eth- ethnic Jews. Paul's early ministry in the book of Acts would give us a preview of this. Everywhere he went, he would go first to the Jews. He'd go to the synagogues first, and then he would go to the Gentiles. We, we have that understanding historically, and so then here's what Here's how we then read what's going on in Israel. Now what happens in that physical land to those physical people, the ethnic Judaism, ethnic Jews in that physical land, it bears not at all on the end of time or when King Jesus comes again. We should look now to true Israel. True Israel is God's people. God's people are anyone who believes in Jesus. They're not confined to a land. They're not confined to an ethnicity. They are of every tribe, tongue, and nation. The land they have been promised, as I have understood more and more over the years, to be everything. The the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This, This earth and all of its systems are the land that God's people will inherit. And as not things that happen in physical Israel to that ethnicity, but when things happen to God's people, they are reminders. Now when there's earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of wars, and it's particularly 
maybe affecting God's people, that's the things that continue to shake us awake. Don't forget. Don't forget the, the mission. Don't forget Jesus is coming. And so I'm going to end there. And I, I hope I didn't make a hash of that. Other theologically astute people, that might have been boring to you because you know all of it. And the only way it wouldn't have been boring is if I got something wrong. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, threads, or CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com. I am open to correction because I largely did that off the top of my head, which was maybe a little bit presumptuous of me to think I could go through that with like four words written on a piece of a Word document here. Okay, uh, so no, don't have fear about what's happening in Israel in particularly more than you would anything else. Uh, use calamity in the world to remind us always Jesus is coming. That the world is broken, but do we, uh, but do we know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? As Austin or uh, Andrew Peterson wrote, yes, we do. All right, final thing, because I have, yeah, I got time. You know what? Maybe I'll hold this into the second one. I was going to talk about um, the idiocy of Tucker Carlson going to Russia and saying it's awesome there. It's not. You know what? I got ten minutes. I can do both. Let's do it. I have this under a heading that says. Don't celebrate the enemies of your enemies. The enemies of your enemies aren't always your friends. Sometimes your enemies are pagan, God-hating people, and their enemies also pagan, God-hating people. So you don't have to go this Machiavellian, uh, in-justify-the-means, pragmatic approach where the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Not necessarily, because you might just have a lot of enemies. That's the nature of things sometimes. And so, uh, Tucker Carlson. Some of you might might like him. I'm fairly indifferent. I don't like him or dislike him. I have often thought him to be an interesting thinker because he leaves orthodoxy. He sometimes leaves normal orthodox conservatism and does some weirdo stuff. And I'm just into weirdo thinkers. I, th- I think when people think original thoughts, they're interesting to me. It's a part why I find like a, a Bill Maher interesting because he's an atheist, lifelong liberal who now pushes hard against modern-day leftism. I find him interesting. I find Jonathan Haidt at New York University, very interesting. Lifelong New York City liberal who has now heterodox views against the woke stuff. I find people who have new and original ideas, even when I disagree with them, to be interesting. So if you have an affinity for Tucker, fine, okay. But I'm telling you, to go to Russia and and say these things about Russia uh, is either ignorant or blind. I guess ignorant, yeah. It's ignorant. I don't... Uh, you know, I, that's that's what I'll chalk it up to. I, I hate assigning motives. I, there might be another motive. I can only think of ignorance as the motive. The interview itself, not a problem. That's something that we have done for years. ABC, CBS, Fox, uh, NBC, they have interviewed Saddam Hussein. and uh, Who am I thinking of? That The guy who used to run Egypt. Forgot his name. Uh, but we've, we've interviewed, as an American media, dictators and strongmen for forever. I mean, we... There was people interviewing the head of Cuba for years and that communist dictatorship. It's not an oddity for an American journalist to interview a dictator. That's fine. But then Tucker does these two things. He goes into a subway that is, admittedly, it's beautiful. It's got chandeliers and stuff. It's got incredible light. And the trains, quote, run on time. And it looks beautiful. And he says, why can't we have these things in America? All right, well, we sort of do. If you've not been to Grand Central Terminal in New York City, it's, it's quite nice. Now, if you leave Grand Central Terminal and go one stop in any direction and you get off, it doesn't smell as nice. It's a little gross. 
depending on what time of day, it can get kind of nasty. But that's that happens in New York City, and you know where that also happens? Moscow. You know, the over, I think it's 70% of all the wealth in all, that entire gigantic country is in two cities, Moscow and St. Petersburg. I would have dared you just to go 30 miles outside the city and see the poverty those folks are in. UN statistics say it's about 30% of the Russian population does not have indoor plumbing. You know how much <laughs> Americans don't have indoor plumbing? It's like 1%. It's basically our homeless population. And our homeless population often finds a way to have indoor plumbing. He goes to a Tucker goes to a grocery store and he says, I'm radicalized. I'm radicalized against our leaders because of how little everything costs here compared to how everything costs in America. Do you not understand economics even a little bit? You're getting your American exchange dollars to their whatever they're called over there, rubles or rupees, whatever it is. I think rupees is from Legend of Zelda, I think. I think I just brought in a video game from my youth. My bad. It's rubles, yeah. You bring in your... your uh, if you were in the not getting your American exchange rate, you'll, you'll find that stuff is insanely expensive over there, that they've inflated their currency like crazy. The typical American spends something like if I remember, it's like 12, 13% of our money on food. It's like 40% of their money's on food. Listen, you can hate your enemies, Tucker. You can look at your American leadership and go, this is a wicked place. Don't look over across the ocean at a murderous dictator and say, it's so much better here. It's another thing I find with some folks I just kind of monitor online. We've got a murderous dictator who just obviously had one of his enemies killed in Russia, uh, Navaldi who alleged to be a Christian. I don't know. I've not pressed on that enough to see if there's a, a real confession of faith there. And the response for some folks I've noticed who are on a particular part of the right just saying, well, you know, leadership is killing people sometimes. you got to kill some people sometimes. All right, that might be true. Uh, might we bring some, biz- some biblical wisdom about who leaders of governments just get to kill? I tell you this, Vladimir Putin, a lifelong KGP spy, has unjustly killed some unknown number, dozens, hundreds, who knows how many, he's killed. He's no one to celebrate just because you you dislike his enemies. It's the same thing I find with a lot of folks in the Christian right and Trump. I get it. His, I, I mean this. His enemies are God-hating demonic pagans. They are. And Donald Trump is a God-hating demonic pagan. Now, there's one of them is pledging to point in the right direction or a better direction than the other. Got it? Understand? Cool. But, man, let's not be so naive to not see who our enemies are. And God-hating demonic pagans tend to be the enemy of, uh, of, of Christian things. And so all I'm saying here is uh, don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Nope, not always. All right, final thing for me, and I'm going a little bit longer than I usually would. I saw this very, I don't know, it's called affirming. This affirming report from Forbes. Here is the first sentence that I just love. Federal tax revenue increased 33% since Congress passed the tax reform bill of 2017. Now, if you remember that, 2017, the tax reform bill was a massive tax increase. Uh, it was a moderate tax increase. And did you hear that? Federal tax revenue increased 33% the last six or seven years. And you would think, that's incredible. That's awesome. 
we raised by one-third our revenue? Man, our debt must be really getting under control. Next sentence. Spending increased more than 50% over that same time frame. So our revenue went up 33%. Put, just put that in your household budget for a second. You end up making this year 33% more than you made last year. Wouldn't that be awesome? You're all paying off debt like crazy. You go on a special trip you wouldn't have otherwise gone on. It's going to be great. You get that dental work that you have been putting off. I, I say that because uh, I have a terrible toothache, and I've had it for days now. I need to get some. I've been putting this off because I don't want to spend the money. In any event, you say, all right, I'm going to do these extra things, but then you're your spending goes up 50%. It even goes up more than your uh, than your revenue went in. Now, I, I love this headline only because it is a good just piece of modern evidence for a economic fact that too few people know. And for some people, for whatever reason, it's not intuitive. And so I want to use this as a teaching opportunity for economics. I'll, I'll call economics the... Neglected science. One of the most important things to impo- is to to understand is economics, and we just have a dearth of understanding. Now, how is it that you can lower taxes a good bit, but get more revenue for the federal government? Consider this. I'm using round numbers, so that and using small numbers so we can understand. Let's say there were 1,000 transactions happening in the economy every day, and those 1,000 or let's call, uh, 1,000 reactions or $1,000 worth of transactions. People buying coffee, gas, whatever, $1,000 worth of transactions. And let's say we had a 10% tax on transactions, sales tax. Well, that would get us $10,000 of revenue. $1,000 of transactions at 10%. Uh, or uh, no, no, I have to add to that. So 1,000 transactions at, what is that, $10 each, taxed at 10%, will get you to 10000 Now, let's say we lower that sales tax to 7%. Now, out of nowhere, it actually is cheaper to get gas and coffee and all those things. And people that have otherwise not, they would not have gotten something, they now spend it. They now spend money they wouldn't have spent. Well, now instead of 1,000 transactions, you get 2,000 transactions at 7%. You don't get 10,000, you get 14,000. Because your lowering of the taxes incentivized and created more transactions so you could tax them. Consider 100 employees getting taxed at 10% each. That brings in $1,000 of revenue. Revenue. Well, what if by lowering the payroll tax and then lowering the income tax and lowering the taxes that it, well, let's just go with payroll tax. Lowering the payroll tax or lowering the corporate tax so that they can have more money to spend on salaries and and hire people? Well, if you were getting 150 people hired, but at a lower tax rate of 7%, you still bring in more revenue. You bring in 1,050. I know this is all, uh, it, it, it gets into, obviously just gets into math and it's abstract, but it's one of the things we really need to know. Historically, lowering taxes actually brings in more money. There's a point that you don't get that. You can lower taxes so much that you actually, you break down your revenue stream. But just a thing for you to understand. And I know a lot of people might now be saying in the back of their head, wait, I don't want the federal government to have any money. We should raise taxes and get them less money. Well, let's not go crazy. I definitely want lower taxes. Uh, But just a piece of trivia and information that we all all should know. And for that matter, the way I would like to do it is lower the taxes and write it into law. Whatever new revenue we get has to go to deficit reduction. 
until we get our deficit down to eh, 50% of our – until we get our debt down to 50% of GDP. Right now our debt's like 130% to GDP. A country can hold debt. It's not a problem economically. It just can't hold this much debt. It is looking like by 2030 the interest payments on our debt will be our third largest line item. So when the government's spending money, it will spend on Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, so old people care. Then we'll spend interest payments, and then the military. Military will be fourth. Consider that in your own household. If you were spending your mortgage, and then the second biggest line item is not your car payments, it's not your tuition payments for your kid's school, it's not your, I don't know what else you buy, your groceries, but your second largest payment was interest payments on your debt. You'd be in some trouble, right? That's the trouble we're headed towards if we don't get this straight. But anyway, the biggest point I wanted to give you was sometimes lowering taxes brings in more revenue. All right, I went over what I usually would. If you stuck with me the whole time, I'm grateful. Thanks for listening to the Corey Truax Show. If the Lord allows, I'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.